All right. Thank you. Good morning again. Hey, we're continuing on in uh, the Gospel of Luke this morning, guys. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. 736. And uh, the title is Repentance and Forgiveness. Repentance and Forgiveness. And as you're turning there, there's actually a, there's a powerful story about forgiveness that I came across that I wanted to share with you. So, it was a, cold, it was a true story, but it was a cold night in February 20, uh, 2007 when this car holding Chris Williams and his family was hit by a 17-year-old drunk driver. Immediately, Chris checked on his children in the back seat and quickly realized his 11-year-old son and 9-year-old daughter had died. Then, as he watched, his pregnant wife sitting next to him exhaled for the last time. Meanwhile, Williams was in so much pain he could barely move his arm to turn off his car's engine. However, before he had even been rescued from his car, Williams told the Desert News that he had this thought. Whoever has done this to us, I forgive them. I don't care what the circumstances were, I forgive them. He proved as good as his word, going on to publicly forgive his family's killer and developing an actual relationship with him and his family. And today, Williams is a, a traveling speaker sharing his incredible story of healing and forgiveness and inspiring others to extend mercy and forgiveness as well. Forgiveness is powerful. It's powerful. And, and criticism is hurtful, right? Like our words are a reflection of what is in our hearts and on our minds. What Jesus wasn't was a critic, now, Jesus definitely called out sin, don't get me wrong, and he rebuked the religious leaders for pride and this outward religiosity, but Jesus was willing to forgive, and he asked people questions in order to reveal their hearts. And once their hearts were revealed, Jesus could, could have criticized them and let them have it, right? It's like, I told you so, but once their hearts were revealed and their sins brought to the surface and recognized... That's when Jesus gave them the truth, in love. Repentance followed and forgiveness resulted. So forgiveness is powerful. I, I like what David Jeremiah wrote. He said, Jesus says that those who live by God's forgiveness must imitate it. A person whose only hope is that God will not hold his faults against him forfeits his right to hold others' faults against them. The point there is that God forgave you so you forgive others, right? Some would say of their offenders, well, there's no way I could forgive them for what they did, so they just hold it against them. Does God hold your sins against you? Absolutely not. With God's strength, you can forgive others of the most horrendous offenses ever. And what we're going to see today is a repentant heart from a sinful woman. We're going to see a repentant heart from a sinful woman. We're going to see a critical heart from a religious person and forgiveness from a loving Savior. And so let's, let's pray again, and we'll get into the Word this morning. Well, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your Word. We thank you, Lord, for the truth it contains. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your Word. Lord, this is living and active. God, this isn't about some polished sermon, Lord. This is about your truth invading and entering our hearts, Lord, so that we would not sin against you, Lord, so that we would take action in the things that you prescribed for us, Lord. And so we pray, God, that you would speak to us through your amazing, perfect, living and active word this morning, Lord. Pray that you bring conviction, bring comfort, 
all the ways in which it works, Lord, we just pray that it would accomplish the purpose in which you set out to, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing, a repentant heart, number one, a repentant heart. We're going to look at Luke 7, 36 to 38 for that, which says, Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house, and he sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears, and wiped them with her hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. So a repentant heart. So, so what's interesting is that an actual Pharisee asked Jesus to a meal. This was not like a normal occurrence. See, the relationship with Jesus and the religious leaders at this point hadn't escalated to the point of this murderous contention fully yet. They were still investigating Jesus. They were watching him closely, you know, and interrogating him. Now, before we go on, it's important to know that the religious leaders needed the word of God too. They needed the truth also, right? It it often sounds like we're criticizing the religious leaders, like they're they're good for nothing. They just use religion, and then God, you know, as a means to use people, they, they mess with widows, they extort, all of these things. And Jesus rebuked them quite a bit, right? Yeah. And yeah, many of them were ungodly sinners, and they were jerks. But side note, you can never represent Jesus by being a jerk. I've never heard of someone coming to Jesus because they yelled at me so good, I just had to accept Christ. Like, I've never heard that before. But we must remember that they were people, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were people created by God as well. They have souls. They were alive, right? They needed to be saved too. And actually, after Jesus' ascension in the book of Acts, what's beautiful is some of these same religious leaders got saved. They became followers of Jesus. So there was hope for them. One of them was Saul. You know Saul before he changes, God changed his name to Paul. The Lord saved his soul. He went from a Christian hater to a passionate Christ follower. And, you know, uh, going to being in New Mexico this last week, I was blessed to teach all week on spiritual warfare because these group of about uh, 15 young adults, 18 to 23, are going all over the United States to share the gospel and and teach churches how to evangelize and actually uh, not just live out the faith but talk about it, use their words, which we're commanded to do, right? How is anyone going to know unless we preach? But Saul was radical in his persecution of Christ, and Saul... Jesus met Saul in a, in, a, in a radical way. And a lot of these kids, they're fresh out of the fire, man. They've been saved for like two, three years. And they're just like, I just want to give my life to the Lord, whatever he wants me to do. Like missionary, pastor, working a full-time job just to be a witness, a light. They're just all in for the Lord. This isn't a little program that's like a week. It's like an eight-month thing. They get taught constantly. They worship. They evangelize every weekend. Again, they go on a six-week tour. We've had them here a couple times as they're going through town. They go to Uganda for a couple months. I mean, this is a serious equipping <laughs> time in their lives. And But hearing their testimonies, it was amazing. It was amazing how God met them where they're at and called them to this huge thing that wasn't even cheap. They didn't have any money, but God, you know, but God was able to provide for them to go to this thing radical like conversions and God's using them. But think about that fact. Like as Stephen was being stoned to death, right, in Acts, I think chapter six or seven, um, he asked forgiveness from his accusers and Saul was standing right there seeing and hearing this whole thing. And so when Jesus met Saul on the Damascus road, Saul immediately said, Lord, when God, Jesus got his attention, he's like, Lord, what do you want me to do? 
It's almost like he was ready. He just needed that, like, wake up, you know? So yes, it's possible for people who are way far from the Lord and downright hateful towards anything biblical or Christian, it's possible for them to get saved. And you guys may have seen this in your life. And you guys may have someone in your life that you're like, that's the person, there's no way. There's a way. If God wants them saved, he will get their attention, right? Jesus went to the Pharisee's home. He sat down to eat. It's like he made himself comfortable. And most think that the Pharisee Simon's invitation to Jesus, like at first here, was legit, like with no ulterior motive, right? Like, I'm not trying to trap you. I just have some questions for you, Jesus, about what you're teaching. Like he was really inquiring. So a woman from the city knew Jesus was at his house, and so she showed up. Now, this woman was pointed out because she was not just a sinner. You know, there were a lot of sinners in a lot of cities, but this woman was pointed out because she was a notorious sinner. She was known, oh, that woman, yeah. You know, she, very bad. You know, maybe growing up in school, you knew someone, you're like, oh, yeah, stay away, you know. But what's taboo about this incident is that a notorious sinner shows up and physically enters a Pharisee's house. Like, this was a big no-no. Like, you didn't, uh uh-uh, you don't do that. Many would have thought this lady was crazy in what she was doing. She entered a religious leader's home? A sinner? What? Now, it was customary in this day for outsiders or commoners to kind of to hover around these banquets and to hear what the important people and the religious elite were saying. You know, everything was open. Doors were open. Homes were open. You know, it was, it was not like South Central LA, which, which was close to where we were from. Like, everything was open. It was safe. Come on in. But unlike certain neighborhoods where you better secure and lock, you better lock your door when you're there, you know? But for a sinful woman who had a reputation to be like a street woman, that's what was thought, to enter this home was unheard of. But now, now as we compare all the Gospels, we know that right before this incident, Jesus had given an invitation, come to me, and, and I'll give you rest, is essentially what he was saying. And most believe this woman repented and was saved before she even came to anoint Jesus with oil. That's why she came to anoint Jesus with oil. So the insinuation is that she had already accepted Christ and wanted to just worship and adore him because she was saved, because of, as they were singing, what he's done. But as, as we'll see, the religious critics only knew what they heard, and they didn't know that she was even saved. And if they knew, would they have cared? Some people who are, are, are tattooed up and pierced are doing more for the kingdom of God than those in three-piece suits and nice houses and fancy cars. It's pretty foolish to judge someone's heart based on how they look on the outside. Man, in L.A., there's, a, there's like a ton of people that don't look Christian, right? And there's a ton of Christians who don't act Christian. It, it, is, it is very different. But this is what the Pharisees were about. And what's funny is that they looked the, mo- they looked the most spiritual. They looked the part. They wore the right robes. They, they prayed long enough on the street corners. Out, you know, they didn't, but they didn't even truly know the Lord. It was just an act. It was fake. So this woman finds Jesus, and so she's like, where is he? I need to give, give homage or give honor to him, you know? See, worship comes, worship comes from an outflow of the way in which the Lord works from our lives. Worship isn't like, okay, we've got to get through this to get to the message and then go get lunch, right? It's, it's an outflow. It's like, thank you, Lord. It's a time to praise God. Thank him for all that he's done, because sometimes we forget. But he has done so much. I remember back in school of ministry, and I think I shared this last week, but I'm just saying, like, I remember in school of ministry 2009, 
where I was like, Lord, I just want to teach the Bible every day. And I was going on this trip. I shared it with the kids because I'm, guys, I'm, I'm teaching the Bible like 10 times in seven days. I'm so, I was so excited. And I was telling them, you guys, I'm, I'm living in answer prayer, like literally like right now. And so, so were you. So many people prayed for you. It wasn't just it automatically happened by chance. God chose you. Like, no, people prayed. People interceded. Like, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a team effort, a body of Christ effort, if you will. But worship comes from an outflow of the way in which the Lord works in our lives. It's not, it shouldn't be forced or contrived. It should be like, I can't help but to worship. Lord, I can't believe you chose me. How am I saved? How did you, I'm in this country. Some people are like, they're kind of like, don't know what to think about being born in America. Why was I born here? It's so prosperous. Why wasn't I born in Uganda or somewhere like super, or India or somewhere super poor? Why did the Lord choose? I have so much. I'm so blessed here in this country. Well, we're born here, and we have so much, so we can go out and give it away to those who don't have much. <laughs> That's why. But we should be constantly humbled by the grace of God upon our lives. Like, like God chose us. He sealed us for heaven. I mean, does it get any better than that? I remember when I was, went to this Christian conference for my first time, and I was never, uh, you know, when I was, I was newer to Christ, right? I was like newly saved. And this is exactly what I thought when I, when I went there. I was like, does it get any better than this? It was amazing. I was like, all these people love Jesus, and they're like outward about it. They're open about it. They're carrying their Bibles. They're not ashamed. They're praying together. I mean, all around the whole conference center, there were people, again, just seeking the Lord, encouraging one another. And I distinctly remember the coffee shop. You know, in the mornings, I usually wake up, woke up early and went, sat on the couch, got some coffee. And they went there in the mornings, and everything, everyone there was just sitting on the tables, on the couches, just seeking the Lord, just writing, highlighting. And I was like, oh my gosh. It was like, it was amazing. I was like, this is like heaven. Everyone is just seeking the Lord, wanting to hear from God. It was the first time I ever been to a place like that, and seriously, I, I just thought, does it get any better than this? I don't think so. Heaven, that's about it. But being with a whole group of young adults who have totally surrendered their lives to Jesus and who constantly seek him was amazing. They are so blessed to be spending their time just growing in the faith and, and going out and sharing the gospel. And, and worshiping Jesus is a result of what he's done in our lives. And I, I believe this was Mary's story here. Now, an alabaster flask, a fragrant oil, it was not cheap. It was expensive. And usually alabaster flasks had no handles, and they, they, um, and they were furnished with long necks that were usually broken off when the contents were needed. And actually, when it comes to like the oils and the fragrant oils, Jewish women commonly actually wore small uh, perfume flasks suspended from a cord around their necks, like a necklace. One Jewish historian said that it was so much a part of them that they were actually allowed to wear this on the Sabbath, which that's a big deal. So this woman, she stood at his feet, you know, behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears. And this woman's emotions were running high, obviously, and she, she used her dripping tears to wash Jesus' feet and used her hair as the towel. Now, back in this day, when people ate, they leaned sideways, uh, reclining their heads close to the table, their bodies leaning away from the table, stretched away from it. Their sandals were removed as they reclined. And so anointing with oil usually happened on the head. But many believe she couldn't get to Jesus to anoint his head with oil, but only could get to his feet since he was you know, stretched out away from the table. Um, Spurgeon said of this incident, he said, Oh, for more of this love 
If I might only pray one prayer this morning, I think it should be that the flaming torch of the love of Jesus should be brought into every one of our hearts and that all our passions should be set ablaze with love to him. I mean, this was not a, first, a normal first century incident, but it stemmed from the woman's love and adoration for Jesus. She couldn't help but to pay him honor for he is a forgiver to the repentant. You mean every sinner with, the repu- with reputations could be forgiven? Yes. She broke the rules. She entered Simon the Pharisee's house and poured oil on Jesus' feet. We can only imagine how awkward this scene maybe was to those there and maybe powerful to others. Like I just picture everyone silently watching this woman and her emotional, worshipful display of Jesus, like, <laughs> like speechless. You ever been speechless? Eyes wide open, jaw dropping to the floor, almost like, what? is happening here. Psalm 115.1 says, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. We were not created to hold back praise or restrain worship. That's the most, that's, that's not a fun place to be. God has saved your soul and while, while you were yet a sinner, and guess what? <laughs> You're not perfect, and you're still messed up. <laughs> so am I. Like, we all are a work in progress. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, right? There's only one place that sinless perfection will exist, and it's not on this earth. That place is being prepared for us by Jesus, right? Inhibitions can easily be annihilated if we let our praise from our mouths and our lives and our words come out, you know? So no one said anything. And no one said anything after this incident. I just picture them just like... What's he going to do? What's the Pharisee going to do? What's Jesus going to do? What is going on next? You know, No one said anything until Jesus broke the silence in the following verses. Well, what did Jesus think about this? Verse 39 to 43 says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, like in his mind, right? he thought, like this man, if, if, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered, right? He, this man said this within himself, and Jesus answered him. Wouldn't that be a trip? Like, just, you think something, and the Lord's like, this, and he answers. And that happens sometimes, right, as believers. But Jesus answered and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And so he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Verse 43, Simon answered and said, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. A critical heart, number two. So the response from Simon, the Pharisee or the host, it was not really favorable, right? Like now Simon doubted Jesus was a prophet because he let this woman touch his feet. Like, do you know the kind of woman this is? Get her out of here. Like, that's the kind of question that emanate from people who are filled with pride. Do you know who they are? Of course, Jesus knew what kind of woman this was. Jesus demonstrated over and over again that he knew hearts and minds of people. Simon was no doubt embarrassed and probably thought this Jesus guy had no discernment. Like, he's not a prophet. Like, what are you letting her in? She shouldn't even have been able to cross into and come into my house. Like, this woman was a horrible sinner. Didn't Jesus know that? Why is he even listening to her right now? Kick her out. She's wasting all that money, pouring that oil. If Jesus was a self-righteous Pharisee, that's what he would have done. But what Jesus actually does is he reads Simon's heart and mind at this point. 
See, it was easy for Simon to see and say that this woman was a sinner, but it was difficult for him to say the words, I am a sinner. Oh, she is a sinner, yeah. But it was hard to say, I am a sinner. I am imperfect. The self-righteous don't have that phrase in their vocabulary. They would never say that, I am a sinner. No, 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 they're all sinners. <laughs> Me, I'm, all, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm pretty, pretty close. Mm. They were just too spiritual in their own eyes, the Pharisees were. So Jesus didn't respond about the repentant woman. Instead, he actually broke the silence by responding to Simon, the Pharisee. Simon saw the sinning woman, but Jesus saw sinning Simon. <laughs> Jesus actually answered Simon with the parable. And again, a parable is a practical story that illustrates a spiritual truth. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors, and he tells this parable. He used parables to make things simple and understandable for the hearers. He used the parable to demonstrate the point that the more we are forgiven, the more we should love. And so this parable doesn't deal with the amount of sin in someone's life. Well, how much do you have exactly? No, it really deals with the awareness of sin in one's heart. See, if a person doesn't think they sin a lot or that others sin more than them, so they're okay, then that's the wrong heart to have, right? Even the Apostle Paul said, comparings of the flesh. You know, I'm more spiritual than that. Comparings of the flesh, right? You're not running your race against someone else. You're running your race against the standard God set. You're just trying to grow in that. So in a sense, you're running the race against yourself, not everyone else, right? So don't compare. But both the woman and Simon, they were sinners. They hadn't attained sinless perfection yet because they were residents on the earth, like. Right? Like the woman was guilty of sins of the flesh. Simon was guilty of sins of the spirit, namely spiritual pride and, and haughtiness. The woman's sins were notoriously known, while Simon's sins were hidden. And he wasn't about to say all the areas he was weak. You know, one of the things when I was meeting with those young adults, I, I asked the question, you know, because I taught, but I also, we had discussions and everything. And I was like, so where are you weak in? Where are you the weakest in? And uh, I was like, you know, it's not going to leave this room. You know, I'm not going to say any names or anything. But at the time, I was like, where are you weakest in? And, and they, all, they all answered because I was like, you know, it, it's important to know where you're weak in so others can pray for you and so you can pray that God's strength would be made perfect in that weakness. It's important self-introspection to be like, where am I weakest in? Where do I struggle the most? Not so others can condemn you or you can condemn yourself, but you can go, Lord, help me in this area. Maybe it's uh, patience, right? You pray for me, okay? Because <laughs> you can pray for me. Like, that's one of my things. I'm like, I just want to go, go, go. And God's like, sit, wait, be still, seek me before you go. Patience. Whatever it is, it's like, Lord, find out your weakness so that you can seek the Lord for his strength in those areas. And you guys know. I mean, if you, as long as you're not suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, you know where you're the weakest. These are the one or two places I keep stumbling in. But so the woman's sins were notoriously known. Simon's sins were hidden, and he wasn't about. He wasn't going to share his weaknesses. He thought he was too good for that. He he would hide those flaws and act flawless. You know, it's it's like years ago, a married couple came to one of the marriage gatherings I was running in California. We were talking about conflict resolution, and they came up. You know, they came up to me. They're like, "Yeah, we don't really need this group. We don't really have any conflict. Like, we don't. I mean, we don't. We don't fight." We don't fight. I was like, what? And I was laughing. You know, we've been married for 20 years. We've never fought. And I, I laughed just because it was, I thought they were joking. And, uh, and when they didn't laugh, I was like, oh, oh, you're serious? Okay. Um, and so I, I, I laughed. And I was like, wow. I was like, really? 
I said, well, what do you do when there's a disagreement or when you don't see eye to eye? Oh, she said, well, we just have like, like discussions, right? <laughs> okay, so what you're saying, in other words, you don't call them fights. You have disagreements and heated discussions. This is the same thing, dude. Okay, so, but they didn't need help. <laughs> they didn't need help according to them. They were fine. Simon was faulty but failed to admit it. See, both this street woman and this religious leader, they were in a sense bankrupt. They could not pay their own debt to God. The woman recognized and repented of her sin. Simon had to be shown that he was a sinner first. It just shows us everyone is at a different place spiritually. Some people think, I'm, too, I'm just good enough. I'm good enough to go to heaven. You ever lied before? You know, you ever get angry? <laughs> Again, you go down this Ten Commandments, they're like, they need it straight up. Other people are like, I'm, not, I'm just too much of a sinner for God to accept me. There's no way he will. You don't have to give them the law. You need to give them grace because they already feel beat up. They already feel condemned. People are at different places, so recognizing yourself, but also recognizing where others are so that you can minister to them where they're at. That's why I think in witnessing, you know, in, in sharing the gospel, it's, it's more important to listen than to talk. Listen and see where they're at. See what they're struggling with. When someone feels comfortable with you, they're going to share. They're going to share their hearts. They're going to be vulnerable. And then God will use us to minister to those people. But if we just go at them right away and just give it to them, you know, then they're never going to want to see us again. They're going to avoid us and be like, oh, there they are. Go run. Get out of here. Get out of the store. Uh, but the woman recognized and repented. Simon had to be shown that he was a sinner because all he was focused on was this notorious sinning woman who just poured expensive oil on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her tears and hair. Forgiveness, is an, it's an amazing gift of God's grace. The debt is paid fully by, by Jesus. You know, there are, there are all these videos now. They're really trendy. Uh, my wife doesn't like them because Jesus said, when you do good works, don't, you know, show others what you're doing. So she, she has a problem with them. But I, I always see them now. Like, and basically, people that are affected by a hurricane or people that are struggling or homeless, people go out and they, they film it, but they give them money or cut a check for $30,000 to start rebuilding their house. They just go out and they just give, right? They give them money to help at their lowest. And the point is that the people making these videos would find out a person's needs and just give them whatever they needed, pay their debt right away so, they'd be help, you know, so they wouldn't be helpless. The response is usually always crying, being overwhelmed, thanking God. And, and one of them is actually a Christian, and he prays for the people, and he talks to you give them scripture and stuff, so I like that one. But the thing is, Jesus paid your debt, a debt that you could not pay, you could not earn. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So see, the woman accepted God's free offer of salvation, so she expressed her love openly. Simon rejected this offer and remained unforgiven. So Simon was both blind to himself and his own sin and blinded the woman and to his uh, honored guest. Spiritually, he couldn't see, and his unbelief prevented his heart to be open to, the, to see truth. So we see a repentant heart, a critical heart, and lastly, we see a forgiving Savior. Verse 44 to 50 says, And then he, Jesus, turning to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair on her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. 
But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus applied the parable to the woman and to Simon. Jesus asked Simon, do you see this woman? Like, like, see, Jesus was like, Simon, do you see her faith or repentance or adoration of me? Do you see what she's doing? Like, spiritually, like, open your eyes. Simon the Pharisee did not see the woman as she was. She was a humble sinner seeking her Savior, desperate, pouring out her heart and her love for Jesus. She was willing to surrender and worship her Savior. And that should be our story. Like, we're willing to surrender and worship our Savior. Maybe even as believers, even maybe as mature believers, wherever you're at with the Lord, maybe there's some things you hold on a little bit too tightly. You say, Lord, that's something I, I am trying to cling on to right now. Like, help me to let that go. Like, I need to surrender that. There was one, there was one girl in New Mexico who, she had a hard time leaving. Like, she knew she was called to go to this, like, program or whatever. And, uh, and she was like anxious, she was crying, she did not want to leave all that she knew, but she knew that was God's will. She surrendered it. And they'd been there for two months, and, and it took time, but she got to the point, you know, after a few weeks of just like being homesick and all this, like, this is where God wants me. Like the anxiety left because God was leading her. She was need, you know, this woman was needy, and, and Jesus fills needs. God's forgiveness is powerful. It's freeing. And Jesus kind of calls out Simon in a big way, saying, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. Now, this is a customary and hospitable thing for a host to do with guests, for guests. Jesus says, she washed my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair, she kissed my feet, anointed my feet with oil. She did all this for me, and Simon, you didn't. Simon had no reverence or adoration for Jesus, but this woman had such a worshipful heart and attitude, and took actions of adoration towards Jesus. And here is Simon criticizing this woman for doing these things to Jesus. Like, Jesus never rejected, like, let me make this clear. Jesus never rejected, like, emotional devotion, okay? Like, sure, we are run by emotions. We don't make our decisions purely based on emotions as believers, but our feelings do follow our faith, right? So emotion is okay to express towards the Lord, and what he has done for you and for me. And it's a blessing. It's overwhelming sometimes to think about all that the Lord has done in our lives. But Jesus goes on and says, I say to you her sins, which are many. Like, she has many sins. She was in sin deep. Like, it was dark. But they're forgiven. What does this mean? Well, this woman wasn't forgiven because of her great, great love. Rather, her love was evidence that she had been fully forgiven by God. And Jesus assures this woman that her sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven, he says. And it's, it's hard for some people to accept that they're actually forgiven after they repent, right? See, in verse 47, Jesus had already stated that her sins are forgiven, but here Jesus says it straight to her, your sins are forgiven, like almost like reassuring her, like they really are forgiven. Some of us need to hear that, like we're condemning ourselves for the past things. Like, no, no, you repented of that. Your sins are forgiven. Don't hold them against yourself. God doesn't hold them against you. So there'd be no doubt about the forgiveness of Jesus. So the Pharisees at the table were like, who is this who even forgives sins? Who's this guy? Like now, now the people were astonished that Jesus, their guest, was more than a prophet. He forgave the sins of the woman as she displayed repentance, humility, trust, and love for Jesus. He says, your faith has saved you. 
Jesus tells us the key to forgiveness. The key to forgiveness is faith. It was the woman's faith that believed the words from Jesus that her sins were totally eradicated. Faith enables the woman to receive the grace that God gave her. Our part is to what, our part is to come to Jesus with humility and submission to receive the forgiveness he offers. Jesus tags this with, I love this, he tags it with, go in peace. <laughs> so this was an amazing moment. She wasn't worthy to be in Jesus' presence, yet he commended it. She came to Jesus, but Jesus did not want her to stay there. He forgave her, and he said, go in peace. He forgave her, acknowledged her love for him, and then sent her away in peace. Go in peace. We can follow these words of Jesus as well, because forgiveness of our sins causes us to move forward and progress in this life, in the faith, to live out our calling from God. If we were commend, or condemned of all of our sins, we'd remain idle, stationary, miserable, right? Just like, oh, everything sucks. We'd wallow in our own misery. But that's not the way of Jesus, right? He's a forgiver. And forgiveness is more powerful than criticism, hate, and bitterness. Forgiveness is freeing, isn't it? I, I, I always remember... Uh, an old time, he since went to be with the Lord, an ex-heroin addict and gang member, and uh, he actually, yeah, he was, I mean, he had a rough life. He had a rough life. And he would just always praise God for forgiveness. That was always on his mind. <laughs> he was just always like, thank you, Lord, for forgiveness. Thank you for forgiving me. He just, he, he almost had to say that to believe it because he couldn't believe for all he did in his past, you know, being in gang fights, shootouts, uh, shooting heroin for 10 years. I mean, he was a rough life, right? But he would always just praise God for his forgiveness. And it was great because he actually reminded all of us, like, yeah, we're forgiven. That's actually quite amazing. That actually blows my mind. I don't deserve it. We don't deserve it, but God forgives anyway. I just want to close with a, with a D.A. Carson quote about forgiveness. It's kind of long, but let me just, I think it's going to be on the screen. Let me read it. It says, he says, the idea is not simply that we have been forgiven and therefore we ought to forgive, but that God himself in Christ has forgiven us and therefore our debt is incalculable. No matter how much wretched evil has been done against us, it is little compared with the offense that we have thrown in the face of God. Yet God in Christ has forgiven us. If we know anything of the release of this forgiveness, if we have glimpsed anything of the magnitude of the debt we owe to God, our forgiveness of others will not seem to be such a large leap. You see, if we you know, remember God's forgiveness to us when we didn't deserve it, when we were sinners, Christ died for us. When we think of that, and we we're let, God, let us be overwhelmed pleasantly by how God forgives us, then it won't be a big thing to forgive others. It'll be like, I do forgive you. God forgave me. I don't deserve it. I forgive you. God has forgiven your past wrongs, all of them. None of us deserve this forgiveness yet. We're forgiven. Therefore, let us extend that forgiveness to those who have wronged us. You, you may have a family member that you are bitter at over some past events. Forgive them. You, you may have some animosity or anger towards someone from the comments or criticism they said to you in the past. Forgive them. You, you may have been yelled at by someone who just doesn't get the decisions you made in the past. Forgive them. Forgiveness becomes an example to others how powerful, grace-filled, and merciful Jesus is. It becomes a witness for Jesus. Christ's work on the cross led to a forgiveness of our sins, which we did not deserve. And, and forgive those in your life who don't deserve forgiveness because through Christ, God forgave you. And, and again, you don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. 
None of us deserve it. Yet while we were sinners, like Romans says, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. I'm going to extend that to others. Thank you for your grace. I'm going to extend that to others. Thank you for your mercy. I'm going to extend that to others. They don't deserve it, but I'm going to extend it to others because you forgave me. That's powerful. Forgiveness is powerful, to which we can say, thank you, Lord. Always be reminded, you're forgiven. Think about all the past things you've done, but don't dwell on them. Don't hold them against yourself. If you repented, God's forgiven you. And forgiveness leads to what? It leads to freedom. It leads to freedom. No bondage, no chains, no slavery. Freedom out of Egypt into the promised land. So to that, we can say thank you, Lord. So let's pray.